once again, welcome back to our Financing Simplified podcast. We're back with Mark from By Mark Law. And for a lot of our viewers, we get a lot of questions like as mortgage brokers um, about the legal part of it. And obviously, as a mortgage professional, we have some insight on what happens behind these scenes, but it's always best to speak to a lawyer. We always defer uh, questions to lawyers. And we did get a couple of questions from some of our viewers. And now that I have you here, uh, First of all, Mark, take it away. I want you to reintroduce yourself uh, to our viewers that are just tuning in for this podcast. Uh, let us know a little bit about yourself. Again, thanks for having me on, Anth. Uh, happy to be here and to be chatting with you uh, in lovely Kleinberg. Um, so my name is Mark Sosha. I'm a real estate, estates, and corporate lawyer. I have a law office in uh, Vaughan. Awesome. No, definitely, Mark, is we work together on many transactions. Always a pleasure to work with you and your team, get the deals done, get everything closed. A lot of times we'll get questions, especially around this time uh, in this market, when it comes to rents, as rents are really, really high. And, you know, Ontario has some of the strictest uh, tenant laws uh, in Canada. Let us, like, fill us in a little bit for some of our viewers. Like, if you're purchasing a home and let's say you, you decide that you want to rent it out, what advice would you give to someone who is renting out a property, they're seeking out some guidance and some uh, solicitor advice. Great question. First thing is make sure that your mortgage, your mortgage permits tenancies, uh, whether you're buying, you might say, don't all mortgages allow me to rent my property? The answer is no. And a lot of mortgages, you give a covenant, uh, which is a promise, a legally enforceable promise to the lender saying that I am purchasing this property uh, for my personal use and throughout the duration of my ownership, I will not lease this property out. So you want to make sure that you are uh, your mortgage allows it, and you want to understand the risks of if you're in you know in default of your your debt covenant, and and you lease a property out which shouldn't be leased out. You under, should understand that you're exposing yourself to risk that the lender can call the loan if they find out. So that's the first thing. Make sure your your mortgage allows it. Uh, second thing is you want to make sure that you have a written tenancy agreement and uh ontario's made it very easy over the last few years they've they've uh a few years ago there's an ontario standard form lease which you can uh get online and you just tick boxes and insert certain key information uh and that's fairly simple make sure you have a written lease make sure you understand if you're a landlord your rights to evict a tenant um so you might some people think that oh when a tenancy is up i can I can ask my tenant to leave the property, say your tenancy is at an end, can you please please leave? The short answer is that's not always the case. Or the short, some people might be surprised to find out that's not always the case. And what the, so what determines your rights as a landlord to terminate the lease is whether your property was first occupied for residential purposes before or after uh, November, there's a particular date in November, I think it might be November 15th, 2018. But just as a general, uh, general rule, I would say that if you have questions about your, this is not you know, legal advice for anybody in particular, if you have questions about your uh, situation specifically, don't rely on this, contact a lawyer and, and ask about your situation in particular. But speaking in generalities, if you buy a new build condo in 2017, then that unit is subject, if you buy a new built condo and you close it and it's first occupied for residential purposes in 2016 or 2017, uh, or even in part of 2018, um, then that unit is subject to rent control. There was a change in legislation in 2018, which again, I believe is no, mid-November 2018, where any units first occupied for residential purposes after November 2018 are not subject to, uh, to rent control. 
So what does this mean? If your unit is subject to rent control, it means that you as a landlord can only raise your rent by the prescribed rate. And we might say, who prescribes that rate? The, the government prescribes that rate by regulation on an annual basis. And sometimes it's zero. Sometimes it you know, matches inflation. But if your unit was occupied, and I, it's important to say, some people think, oh, I bought the unit after 2018 or I leased the unit after 2018. The question is not when did you buy the unit or when did you lease the unit? It's not a owner specific question. It's a unit specific question is when was the, your unit first occupied? So if you bought a condo, if there's a condo that was built in, in 1995 and you buy it in 2020, that unit was built in 1995. It was subject. It, it was occupied as a residence in 1995. 1995 comes before the year November 2018. So your unit is subject to rent control. So some people mix that up. They think it, it depends. It's it's not a purchaser specific test. It's a unit specific test. So if your unit is subject to rent control, you're limited as to how much you can increase your rent year over year. If your unit is not subject to rent control, you can increase your rent by whatever you want at the end of the term. And it's up to the tenant to determine whether or not they want to remain in that unit at the new rent or leave, right? Mm -hmm. Failing, so, th so that's the first thing I would say. Failing that, your rights to terminate a lease and, and uh, your rights to terminate a lease would be you can, uh, if you own the unit personally, you and you need to occupy that all or part of the, the part of the unit that's occupied by the tenant for personal purposes, uh, or for a close family member, and you should check with your lawyer to figure out whether, uh, like cousin Tony is probably not a close family member. You got you got to check with a lawyer and see who you your your mother in law or uh, your kid close family members. But once you start getting further away from from you know direct family, uh, you may not be able to to have those people move in and, and, uh, and, uh, and terminate the lease on that basis. So like I said, you just have to be aware of your termination rights. That's what I would say. And before you sign a lease, before you buy an investment property, have a conversation with a lawyer about your termination rights in respect of that unit in particular. And if you own a unit and the lease is up and you say you own it under a holding company or something like that uh, and you want to sell the unit, you can always sell the unit subject to the lease. And if you sell the unit subject to the lease and the purchaser intends to live there and the lease is at an end, you can terminate the lease before the closing. But those are broad strokes, your termination rights as a, as a landlord. So for a lot of our viewers out there, it's very important to speak to a lawyer, especially if you're looking to purchase an investment property as a rental, especially if it's a condo unit. Does that apply to houses as well or just? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it applies to, to uh, condos, houses. And I would say your good, good suggestion, talk to a lawyer, as you said, but talk to a lawyer before you sign a contract mm -hmm. because after you sign a contract, you may have limited, you may already be contractually locked into a situation that you would prefer not to be locked into. There's always the option not to close, to default on a deal or something like that. That option always exists, but it's, it's not fun and it's not one that most people usually choose. So I would say if you have questions, it's always better to talk to a lawyer before you sign a document than to wait and it might be too late, right? And you know, it's tough in this environment, especially as we go through these, uh, you know, 
ebbs and flows when it comes to clients being able to put condition of financing in their clauses. So a lot of the times they're just going to be buying this place and hoping for the best. But as I said, like, it's really good if you know that you're going to be putting this, an offer on a property. Uh, you know, like we've worked with clients to get appraisals done ahead of time just to make sure that they can go and firm. But having that conversation with the lawyer, I really think gets overlooked in most cases. It's like they buy the trend, they, you know, they buy the house and then it's like, uh, and we'll be working with clients. It's like, uh, okay, you bought the house, like you have purchase agreement. Say, like, okay, where did you send this to a lawyer? They're like, oh, we haven't got a lawyer yet. And I'm like, uh, especially for even you construction, big, uh, you know, at, enter that oh, into this conversation. I'll, this is a big one. This is huge with, with, uh, okay, I'll let you, I'll let well, you, I'll let you fill in. Like, so when you buy a new construction house, what should someone be doing if you're buying a new construction okay, unit? Okay, good. So there's a lot of confusion in the marketplace about buyer rights on the purchase of new build units. Some people think that if I buy a, a new house from a builder, I have a cooling off period, a 10 day cooling off period. That's partially correct. That's correct if you buy, uh, if you take an interest in property where there's a condo component to it. So if there's a condo, if you're buying a, a new build condo, or if you're buying, say, a townhouse on a condo road, the law prescribes a 10-day cooling off period, and the vendor and the purchaser cannot contract out of that. So by law, by by right of law, you as a, as a purchaser of a new build condo have a 10-day cooling off period. If you buy a 40 foot uh, in uh, 40 foot detached home in Bolton that's not on a condo road that's a freehold property and you should you can ask the builder you can ask a lawyer uh, what am I buying is it freehold is it is it uh, a condo is there a condo component to it such that I have the cooling off period but if you're buying a freehold property the only way that you have a cooling off period is if the contract itself gives you that condition and in situations where there are people you know lined up out the door for a new release and and it's it's you know exclusive to get on the list to even uh, be there on the Saturday morning to put an offer on one of these places it's very uncommon that they, or unlikely that they would offer that kind of condition so when you buy I tell people all the time, when you buy a new build property, the agreement of purchase and sale is as much a marketing document as it is a legal document. Uh, you're sitting in, in, a, in a situation with salesmen who are very good at what they do, very persuasive, and there's a contract that's put in front of you and you see a sticker price. A lot of people don't realize that that sticker price is subject to adjustments. And even if they do understand that it's subject to adjustments, they don't understand whether there are caps on those adjustments. They don't understand the mechanism by which that the, the amount of that adjustment will be determined. And they really, they, maybe they have, even if they're experienced in the real estate industry, you might have bought four or five properties, but they're all resale. Uh, new build is a completely different ballgame. So make sure that you either are that you are either comfortable paying more than the sticker price if you buy a new build or if you if you are not comfortable and you want to understand you're not comfortable just with that blanket statement i i'm not comfortable just paying more i want to know why i might pay more or how much more i'm reasonably likely to pay mm -hmm. you should reach out to a lawyer in the case of a freehold property before you sign the agreement or in the case of a condo deal immediately after signing the agreement so that your lawyer can give you advice uh, as to the how these these uh, charges these additional closing adjustments are going to be charged uh, and so that your lawyer in many cases can reach out to the vendor's lawyer for ask for changes. And oftentimes the vendor's lawyer will give changes and provide caps on certain adjustments and delete other adjustments in the entirety. If you have your document reviewed by a lawyer and the request goes out. The other thing that I would say 
about new builds is um, you don't know when you're going to get your property, right? So with a, with a, if you buy a property that, that exists, you know with you know with with, with almost certainty as much certain as certain as anything can be right the vendor can always default but you have a high very very high degree of, of certainty that you're going to close and be able to live in your house on that particular date with a new build where you know especially throughout covid people have had their homes delayed uh delayed for a, for you know uh, uh, months and years sometimes even outside of the COVID context, there could be project specific issues where sites are delayed for years and years and years. You're talking five, seven years, 10 years, right? In, in some cases, that's not, mm-hmm. that's not impossible. That's not unheard of. I know of one or two cases like that, right? Um, so you want to know who the builder is, right? Is, is it somebody that has a track record in the industry for being able to deliver on time, for example? Uh, that's going to really minimize or speak to the risk of the house, the, the unit taking longer to build than, uh, uh, than you might initially expect. And then another thing, and I could go on for half an hour here about, about th- the main takeaway here is before you do a new build, before you sign a new build contract, call a lawyer. The, the final thing that I'll mention on this uh, which is by no means exhaustive of the risks is um, is if you buy a condo, there's a period called the occupancy period, which catches Good people point. by surprise. And what it is is there there will likely be a point in time when your unit the, the, the municipality has given an occupancy certificate in, for, in respect of your unit, which means the unit you're purchasing is fit for habitation, but the condominium corporation has not been created and the unit cannot be transferred to you. So there's a period called the interim occupancy period between when your unit is fit for habitation and the condo can be sold. And during that period, the most uh, condominium contracts in Ontario will say you have a con- you have a contractual right to occupy the property and have exclusive use of the property subject to certain limits. You may not be able to lease the property during that period and you'll have to pay an occupancy fee, which is basically meant to um, compensate the builder for the cost of carrying the home between the period where the home is ready for habitation and when it can be sold. So you can talk to a lawyer about spe- about specifics for your unit, but just know that if you're buying an investment condo, or even if you're buying a condo for yourself, you know it, it might not be done on time, and uh, it might, uh, and you might have a lengthy period, and it could be two months, it could be sixteen months, where you are paying to live at the property, and you're not earning any equity in the property. So that's not being put towards a mortgage. We used to call it a phantom mortgage, right? We used to, we used to call it. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really good point that you touched on that, because, I mean, as someone who's closed multiple uh, new construction homes, it's, it's almost imperative that you have a lawyer review it. And that's changed, actually. I remember when we bought our first pre-construction home, some of the builders would give you that cooling-off period of five days uh, for lawyer review. But I think now with the frenzy... Uh, they sort of stripped away. And, and sort of a piece of advice, um, most of, the, at least from my experience, from a lot of the clients that are purchasing new construction builds or there's these, uh, you know, as you mentioned, you're waiting in line. A lot of them will actually sometimes have some of their legal documents online so that you can actually they may, uh, yeah. give them to, to, your, uh, lawyer to your lawyer beforehand so you know exactly what you're getting into. Because trust me when I say this, how many times we work with clients, it's like, and we're always telling our clients, look, you're buying new construction, you're closing, you know, it's like, it's 
almost important to understand you're going to be adding additional money uh, to that closing, some different, definitely yeah. charges that are going to be there. So yeah. they need to be prepared for that closing. Yeah, a lot of times they'll be like, oh, we're going to put everything we have to the mortgage. I'm like, uh, oh, and up. important, this is very important, is the lender usually, and you can speak this better, the lender will usually lend based on a percentage of the contract price not the contract price, so the, the dollars and cents noted on page one of the agreement of purchase and sale, not the contract price subject to adjustments, which means those additional costs will have to be financed in cash. You can't borrow for them. If there are $20,000 worth of adjustments, the bank's not gonna lend you you know, nope. an, an additional $15,000 to pay for those $20,000 worth of adjustments and you only foot the bill for 5,000. You have to foot the bill dollar for dollar for all, 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 all additional <clears throat> costs. And the other thing is, you should talk if you're buying a new build uh, condo. There are there's provisions in the agreements of purchase and sale. This is the other major thing, and then we can maybe move on from new builds. But um, there are provisions in the agreement of purchase and sale that say that you are representing to the vendor that, it, often cases, you'll represent to the vendor that you're living there. Uh, and you're not buying it as an investment, and that's relevant for the vendor because the vendor is relying on that assumption to allow you to transfer a tax rebate, an HST rebate to them. And the agreement will further stipulate, it will say that you're a, you, the purchaser, are assigning a tax rebate to the vendor. And in the event that you, the purchaser, become disentitled to the tax rebate, or even sometimes if there's a change in law and the tax rebate goes away, which would be very unlikely, but um, that, that it would apply if the tax rebate were stripped, you would think that Parliament, and this is me speculating, would say that it only applies to future deals, not to deals that have already been signed. But again, that's just speculation. Um, but the agreement will say that if you become dis you as a purchaser become disentitled to that rebate, then you will pay that rebate yes. dollar for dollar to the vendor. And that rebate can be twenty four to twenty seven thousand dollars. Oh, I've we've had it happen multiple times where yeah. they didn't disclose it and then all of a sudden it's like they have to rent it out. And uh, that HST, they have to, they have to. It's cover. a kick it's in the not, pants. It's, there's it a mechanism. Long story short, there's a mechanism to get part of that rebate back uh, after the closing if you find yourself in that situation. But yeah, long story short, like talk to a lawyer, and it'll probably be a good, you know half hour 40 minutes for him to review the agreement and a half hour 40 minute call hour call if it's being done properly for you to understand all your or, or have have a good uh, um, explanation of the the liabilities uh, and the benefits of a, of a condo as they are a new build property as it applies to you the benefit of a new build property and this is not legal but this financial uh, commentary is you have your deposit tied up for four or five, only your deposit tied up for four or five years or however long it takes to build. But you have rights to buy an asset which is worth, you know, a multiple of your deposit and is growing at market rates, right? So at, at the rate of the real estate market. So if you bought a new build in 2017, you might have been able to, uh, you might have been able to buy a condo for three, all uh, just Whatever. examples, right? <laughs> Don't place any reliance on this. But 2017, you put $40,000 down for your new build condo. The condo itself is worth $500,000, right? With that $40,000, you have a $5,000 asset, which in 2020 or 2021 is worth say uh, $700,000. So with your 40, you've tied up $40,000 of capital and you've made a $200,000 profit. That's why new builds were 
were so popular and, and, and remain popular, right? Is you have that situation where you tie up a small, small amount of capital and you have a large, large, and you're not making any payments, right? It's not like you're making mortgage payments for that, for that period where you're waiting for the property to be built. Uh, and that's why people have loved them. Whether that, that situation will persist into the future. I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball, but no, I think there's a lot of people that did that. As soon as that fire sort of caught wind, a lot of people started to do paper flippers, right? They were just buying it and reassigning it yeah. uh, because everyone was making money. It was like a, a movement. Where Caveat here, you may not have a right. Some units, you may have a right of assignment. Some units, you may not have a right of assignment. If you have a right of assignment, there are HST implications to exercising mm -hmm. that right of assignment. You should talk to a lawyer about the HST implications of paper flipping in respect of a new build. And taxes, uh, so talk to an accountant too. Yeah, that's <laughs> H exactly. Yeah, talk to you, talk to a lawyer and talk to an accountant about the the tax implications of that. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I mean, that's definitely great. There's a lot of new, a lot of stuff with new construction homes. But I think one of the major questions that we got to, and we were talking about off camera, is some of the differences, like when it comes to obviously the mortgage component, co-signers and guarantors. Mm -hmm. But on the legal aspect of it, what does it mean? Uh, to someone or a parent or a sibling or someone that's going to go on a deal. Yeah, maybe give us some insight from the legal perspective. So co a co-signer from a legal perspective is a distinction without a difference. There's no, there's no such thing as a co-signer, right? You are a mortgagor. You're a chargeor. You're somebody who is, who is liable for the loan, right? Who, who, who has obligations under the mortgage. Most cases, what will happen is, uh, you know, husband and wife, they have some money, uh, they have some income, but they need, you know, dad or mom or both to co-sign, as it's said in the industry, right? Um, what the dad and mom are agreeing to do in that case is they're agreeing to accept full liability for the repayment of the loan. They're taking a beneficial interest in the property, so they're getting something for it. Uh, and usually the way those deals are structured, and I see this happen sometimes where you have people who are intended to be co-signers, uh, but when they when they go on title to the property, they're on title as a joint tenant with their, with their, their kid and their, their in-law, right? Um, which in my view is not the best way to paper that kind of relationship. A joint tenant has a right of survivorship to a property. So this would mean, for example, if husband and wife both pass away, so you've got husband, wife, and, and dad are all joint tenants on a property. Husband and wife pass away, dad inherits the property as the surviving joint tenant, right? So that's obviously not the situation that most people would want. There are also tax implications because dad owns as a joint tenant of the property, but he doesn't live at the property. So talk to your accountant about the implications, if any, about your eligibility for the principal residence exemption. Do you, are, do you become disentitled to a part of the principal residence exemption because that is on title as a, as a joint tenant? In my view, a better way to do this would be to put, the bank just cares that dad has an interest in the property. Mm -hmm. So the best thing to do is to say, husband and wife are joint tenants as to 99% of the property. Dad is a tenant in common. His in, he owns an interest that's separate and distinct without a right of survivorship as to 1% of the property. And that, that doesn't mean to say that dad is only liable for 1% of the mortgage. He's, he, he only gets 1% of the property. He's still liable for 100% of the mortgage, but it, it goes some way to addressing the, the tax issues. And does this help them with land transfer tax? It, it, that's actually another benefit. Yes, if 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 husband and wife in this case are um, are first time home buyers, your entitlement to the first time home buyer uh, land transfer tax exemption uh, is proportionate to the percent the the the. Uh, 
the proportionate share of purchasers who are first-time home buyers. Mm -hmm. So if you have a husband and wife who are both first-time home buyers and they take 99% of the property, you become eligible to 99% of the first-time home buyer land transfer tax rebate. Whereas if you're on title as tenants in common, you might look at it as only two-thirds of the parties mm -hmm. are are uh, uh, eligible for the, the rebate. So you're only eligible for 66.66% of the rebate. The the 99% that the husband and wife own in that circumstance would go out in accordance with the will of the husband and wife, or if the husband and wife don't have a will, there's rules in Ontario called the intestacy rules that says where property goes if we find ourselves in a, in a situation where somebody passes away without a will. And the general rule is that, I mean, it really depends if you have a spouse, so you're married and you have no children, everything goes to your spouse. If you're married with children, mo most of what, your spouse will get a preferential share of your assets and then the balance will go to your, uh, and then the balance will be split between your spouse and your mm -hmm. kids. And it just, it, it, it keeps getting more remote who inherits your property. But in that case there, hopefully, you know, where, where dad is on title for uh, 1%, husband and wife own 99%, husband and wife pass away. Hopefully, husband and wife have a will that says what happens to their property. And the will is actually a good, uh, good suggestion. A lot of times, we're working with first-time homebuyers, we tell them, you know, you want to work with a lawyer, you want to work with them, because at this point in the game, you now you have an asset, and you know, eventually, you know, most people overlook this this thing. So even with insurance, and especially as you get family, you get busy, you get tied up. But I think this is working with a real estate lawyer that has uh, that offers wills like you do, is uh, you know adding that extra layer of protection and God forbid something happens, right? That's well, a, yeah, will, wills are not like a, a primary focus of my, my practice. I don't focus on it, no, but I, right. I focus on it enough because I have clients where I do all their real estate transactions, I'm their corporate lawyer, and I know everything about them, and it only makes sense that I can assist them with their estate planning as well. Um, and I would say for about half first-time home buyers who have kids, you know, husband, wife, couple kids, they're buying their first home. Uh, often case, uh, oftentimes they'll, at the end, at the tail end of our, after I've closed their house, they say, oh, do you do wills? And I say, yeah, I do wills. Like get settled into your house and then, you know, give me a call whenever you're ready and, and we can discuss options because they're worried about guardianship for the kids. They're worried about, they have questions about probate tax. Probate mm -hmm. tax is uh, essentially a tax paid on the assets that pass under your estate uh, if you need the court to stamp the will, which is said to probate the will, you'll have to pay the court a tax to do that. Um, so that's why it's, it's part of my, my, uh, my services that I offer because I get to know my clients affairs so well that I'm in a good position to be able to give them estate advice too. Would. Yeah. Mark, thanks for being on. Uh, where can they find you once again? What's the website? Oh, so you can go to my website. It's www.bymarklaw.com and you can uh, reach me and my team there. Once again, thanks for uh, tuning in to our Financing Simplified podcast. Obviously, you can find us on social at A underscore Venuto. Obviously, our website at InTouchMortgageSolutions.com and on YouTube. Uh, thanks again for tuning in, but we'll see you next week. Welcome to all the